Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's topic, we're covering 27 Club Curse, which you voted on, by the way. Yeah, with me? I, oh, oh, you mean our you, listeners. The, the oh. listeners. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to rate and review us. I believe that's uh, something you can do on iTunes. Yes, or Apple Podcasts. Ah. You can also contact us through our email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. You can also visit our Facebook and Instagram pages, which is historyexplainsall underscore podcast. Yeah, and don't forget to visit our Instagram page for our Today in History segment and to vote on upcoming episode topics, which we will be having a new one uh, close to the end of July, beginning of August. I'll put an official announcement out. Woohoo! Let's get started. There's not a lot to talk about the history of the or the origins of the 27 Club Curse. It really became a thing after the death of Kurt Cobain in 1994, because several, and it particularly focused in at this time on musicians who had died at the age of 27. Several several had died. Uh, Kurt was not the first artist to die at the age of 27. Others included Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, and that's just to name a few. But a string of of, uh, singers and musicians had died at the age of 27 consecutively in several years. And it only recently started to include, you know, actors and actresses and artists and other people outside of just the music industry. And if we're talking about, uh, according to the research that I've done in 2011, uh, Amy Winehouse was the most recent singer to pass away at the age of 27, which brought the idea of the 27 Club Curse more attention. And that's all I've got for the origins, because there's really not a specific date or origin of that of that information according to wikipedia which is not a source we usually like to use but sometimes it's a good starting point there is a very long list of every person that uh, every celebrity that's died around the age of 27 going back to the late 1800s wow yeah That was, I don't know how long ago that list was compiled, but if I understood correctly, there's at least 60 people on this list. Uh, I I don't know, but I do know that one of my sources is the Rolling Stones, and they have a list starting with uh, Robert Johnson in 1938, so. He's not the first, but he is who I'm going to start talking about first. So what Lauren and I both did is we don't want to, we're not going to go through every single one. We just sort of cherry picked some of the more prominent ones just to give an idea. And so we each chose two. So we don't want to make this go very long. We chose two artists to talk about their, their death and kind of a little bit about their life and, and how they died at the age of 27 and joined the 27 Club Curse. Right. And their influence on later artists, if that was a case with them and things like that. Mm-hmm. So first, we are going to talk about Robert Johnson, aka Father of the Blues. I like Robert Johnson; he's really cool. So a bit about Robert Johnson. So he was born on May 8, nineteen eleven, in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, and 
pretty much spent most of his time in the South, which is mostly what he's known for, his Delta Blues. So he was born to Julia Dons and Noah Johnson. And while he was still very young, his family was actually chased out of town by a lynch mob, unfortunately, uh, supposedly regarding a land dispute with a white family. So Robert Johnson is black, just in case anyone didn't understand that. And they actually settled in Mississippi for the next several years. And it was actually here in, or sorry, not Mississippi. They went from Mississippi to Memphis. Memphis being a major, major music capital, even at that time. So this is where Robert found his love of blues and pop music as he was growing up. And though he's mostly known for his blues playing, he was also very proficient in pop music, jazz, as well as country. And after he lived in Tennessee, he moved to Arkansas for another few years, then returning to Mississippi, probably looking to find his birth father, whom he didn't actually live with. And it was at this time in his late teens that he met Isaiah Zimmerman, who was another musician who helped him to perfect his guitar playing. So it is said that prior to going back to Mississippi, Robert Johnson was not very good at the guitar. And then meeting Isaiah Zimmerman, who helped him perfect his guitar playing. Afterwards, he was amazing at the guitar. Some people play that up to the legend of Robert Johnson, which I'll get into in just a minute. But not including the legend, if you think about it, he was back in town for about two years learning to play the guitar before going back to visit friends and family and other places that he's gone to. And like, oh, wow, he's, he's amazing. It's like overnight, he was really a two-year difference, which is a long time to learn how to proficiently play the guitar. But given that there's, there's a tale about Robert Johnson and his selling his soul to the devil, but there's also something similar about Isaiah Zimmerman. So it's known or said that Isaiah Zimmerman learned, quote, supernaturally to play the guitar by visiting local graveyards at midnight and sitting on the tombstones and learning how to play the guitar, which is exactly what they did. But it wasn't so much a supernatural way of learning as it was it, at the time, graveyards were really quiet and no one was there to bother them. Graveyards are typically pretty quiet. So Now there's not a whole lot known about Robert Johnson's life, but it is known that he did start off as a traveling performer mostly playing juke bars, dances, and street corners. And his musical career would typically span between 1929 to 1938, most notably during the years of 1932 to 1938. And as I said, he mostly stayed in the South, but he did occasionally travel much farther North. On one tour, he went through Texas, Chicago, all the way up to Canada, and even New York. So he was traveling all and about. Now, it's hard to pin down various areas of his life as he would often use fake names when he was traveling, but he was known by anyone that knew him or played with him that he was, quote, well-mannered, soft-spoken, yet indecipherable. And others saying that everyone agreed that while he was pleasant and outgoing in public, in private, he was reserved and liked to go his own way. He was fairly average except for his talent, his weakness for whiskey, women, and his commitment to the road. So he really loved to travel and play guitar. During his very short career, which is something that you'll see through a lot of the 27 Club Curse musicians at the very least, incredibly 
short period of time, but a massively large career, even posthumously. But during Robert Johnson's more or less six year career, even though it's really close to about 11, but from 32 to 38, he made only two recording sessions. Everything else was on the road or live. The first was in San Antonio in 1936, and the second was in Dallas in 1937. Between the two recordings, he actually recorded 29 songs, 13 of which still survive. But he also recorded several different alternatives to these songs as well. So there's more of a discography than it seems like. And with the release of his first album in 1936, it actually it was only two songs back then because it's very usually it just had A side and B side with one or maybe two songs, depending on the type of recording. But the first album only had two songs and it sold 10,000 copies, which is pretty good for that time, I would think. Now, when he died, it wasn't reported publicly and actually wasn't known by many people until after the late 60s, about 30 years after he died, that people were aware that he was even dead. And this is when Gail Dean Wardlow, who was a musicologist actually researching Johnson, found his death certificate. The certificate actually states that there was no autopsy formed, only a cursory examination. And it actually is believed by some that he died of congenital syphilis, which is syphilis that is passed down by your parents. And yeah, not fun. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't sound good. Well, that's the theory. Again, there was no autopsy. And there's other theories on how he died. And I'll get into one of them, which is probably the most popular theory of how he died. But outside of the theories, medically, that is additional cost to his death, if anything. So not like, so the legend of him being able to play the guitar is he sold his soul to the devil. So that's what he's mostly, the legend of Robert Johnson is mostly, uh, he's known for as well as his music. But the legend of how he began to play so well is that one day he was told to go to the crossroads at a local a local crossroads in Mississippi to where you stink. And there's so many different places where people say this happened. So it's again, it's a legend. So who's to say it actually happened, but supposedly while he was there, a black man showed up known as the devil and took Robert's guitar that he had with him, tuned it, played it a little bit, gave it back to Robert and said, for your soul, now you can play amazing. And he did. So again, legends just surround Robert Johnson. The legend of his death is also a big thing too. So there's various tales about the circumstances around he died. The most prevailing theory is that he was flirting with a woman at a fair that he was playing at and in Mississippi at the time. And her husband didn't like that. So the husband decided to poison a whiskey bottle that his wife was going to give Johnson because as I said he loved women and whiskey but a friend of his was with him and supposedly knocked the bottle out of his hand saying do not drink anything that you didn't open yourself so Robert turned to him and was like don't tell me what to do and went and grabbed for another whiskey bottle which had been poisoned and he drank it and apparently soon Robert began to feel very ill and continued to get worse to coming to his death three weeks later Again, we don't know if that's actually true, but that is one of the most prevailing story among others. 
What's more known is his influence on later artists, including other 27 Club members as well, too. As well as, of course, as I said, the legend around his career and his death. So he did have some minor success during his lifetime, but it really wasn't until the 60s that his career really, really took off. As I said, Gail uh, Wardlow was doing a lot of research on him and kind of was one of the reasons he became more mainstream. So after hearing some of his songs, John Hammond, who was part of Columbia Records at the time in 1938, went looking for him to actually book him for a concert at Carnegie Hall, which is actually a really big deal. However, he was a little late having found out that Robert Johnson unfortunately passed away not too long before he came looking for him, but he didn't know. And again, in 1941, Alan Lomax, who also worked for Columbia Records, came looking for Johnson, also only to find out that he had died several years before. But what Lomax did is he actually set about collecting his recorded works and then eventually put them into an album called The King of Delta Blue Sears, which was released in 1961. And this actually kind of put Robert Johnson on not only the national music scene, but also the international music scene as well. And it's also, again, being it's the 60s, there were many up and coming artists bringing their own style of music to the scenes, many of which were actually influenced by the playing in the lyrics of Robert Johnson. And these would actually include Eric Clapton, who is famous for saying that Johnson was, quote, the most important blues singer that ever lived. Also influenced Bob Dylan, Robert Plant, and Jimi Hendrix. And then because of the resurgence of Robert Johnson's influence, various covers and music over the years, there have been biographers who have attempted to reconstruct his life. Most notable is the 2019 biography by Gail Dean Wardlow and uh, Bruce Conforth called Up Jump the Devil, The Real Life of John Robert Johnson. There's also The Search for Robert Johnson and Can't You Hear the Wind Howl from Life and Music of Robert Johnson, both of which of those came out in the 90s. And he was also one of the first inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So interesting cool. life. Okay, so moving on, uh, I guess I got the second one too. So we're going to talk about another blues, but this time it's a lady. In fact, the first lady of blues herself, Janis Joplin. Yeah. So Janis Joplin was born in January 19th, 1943 in Port Arthur, Texas, and developed a love of music at a very young age. In fact, would often be performing and singing in her church choir. And apparently she was a good student with good grades up until about high school, but usually once puberty kicks in, the bullying sometimes tends to start. And it was also around this time that people tend to sort of rebel and try to find who they are. So again, she's growing up in the 50s. So in high school, she was rebelling against the social and norms and the fashion norms of the 50s fashion of usual skirts and dresses. And decided mostly to wear men's shirts with tights or even mini skirts. And unfortunately, this got her a lot of teasing with bullies calling her a pig and others saying that she was sleeping around and promiscuous because she wasn't wearing what society said people, or at least women, should be wearing. But then come the 60s. So she eventually would be part of a group of male friends that she had. And they all shared 
similar tastes in music and also the quote beat generation, which was the generation of the 60s that rejected social norms and believed in creative expression. So not so much the hippie movement, but maybe you could say maybe a early branch of. And it was also around this time that she developed not just a love of music, but a love of blues, jazz, and folk music. And by the end of high school, she had a reputation as, I love this, quote, ballsy, tough-talking girl who liked to drink and just be outrageous. Love it. So after high school, she floated around a bit. She went to one semester at Lamar State College and then over to Port Arthur College and then went over to Los Angeles in 1961. But her time there and trying to make it as a musician didn't work out. She ended up moving back, moving back to, to Texas and then on to the University of Texas at Austin in 1962. It was here she actually began studying art and performing at folk scenes, which was a casual musical gatherings where people could perform anything they wanted to, anyone could perform. So by 1963, she did try her hand on the West Coast again, but this time in San Francisco with her friend Chet Helms. And her and Chet and their friends would go around town playing gigs and performing, even at one point on a side stage at the Monterey Folk Festival in 63. And unfortunately, it was kind of here that her drinking and excessive drug use was really taking its toll. She'd already started using, I can never say this word, amphetamines uh, and heroin around this time. So it was really causing her a lot of distress. It was being very detrimental in her life. So in 1965, she traveled back home just to kind of take a break from her parting lifestyle and I guess calm down a bit. The next year in 66, her friend Travis Rivers actually asked her to audition for a new band that was based in San Francisco called Big Brother and the Holding Company, which was her first known band. And actually the manager of which was her old friend Chet Helms. And her audition was apparently a massive success and she was very quickly inducted into the group. Now, in the early days of the band, she didn't sing a whole lot in terms of the forefront of the songs and was typically in the back, uh, maybe singing backing vocals and playing the tambourine. But soon she found herself front stage of the band as the, her vocal sounds, which were very, un, I don't say unusual, unlike a lot of the vocal sounds of female singers at the time, even kind of blues, females had more of a, a softer sound to them, where Jazz's voice, definitely had its own sort of tone to it. And because of the tone of her voice, her style, and her apparent straight from the bottle bourbon drinking during gigs, gave the band a lot of attention and she soon became the front of the band. And after playing the Monterey Folk Festival in San Francisco in 1968, the band was actually signed to Columbia Records where their album Cheap Thrills went out that following year and just blew up on the charts and very quickly went gold, which is amazing, especially for her first album. But by the year, by the end of the year, however, despite the popularity of the band, she decided that she was gonna part ways with her friends and set out on a solo career because she kind of felt that she needed to do it on her own in order to have her creative freedom that she needed. And, it was released in 1969. So I was like, we're 
go back a little bit. So she performed at Woodstock in August of 1969, which was a massive hit, of course. And her first solo album came out the following month. But the first album wasn't received very well. But her next album was a massive success. But unfortunately, Janice would not be around to see it. So she sadly passed away on October 4th, 1970 from an accidental heroin overdose. And her manager would actually end up finishing the album for her and releasing it posthumously the following year in 1971. But for, again, the short, very quick, successive, popular career that she had, she's still going on. So posthumously, she's continued fame with various books, films, documentaries, and even album collections over the years. And as I said, she is dubbed the, quote, first lady of rock and roll. Also makes for really fun karaoke songs. Just <laughs> of course you would say that. Yes, I do. All right. You're done, right? Yeah, go ahead. We're actually moving on to the one that really rocketed, to the artist that really rocketed the 27 Club Curse to what we know it is today, which is Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain, as we know, is known for having founded the band Nirvana, Back in 1985 with one of his friends. Didn't know it was that old. It really only became a well-known band in the early 90s, though. Well, I knew that. I didn't know it sounded back in 85. Yeah, it struggled for about a five, six-year period there. Well, that's not uncommon, though. No, it's not. I mean, you're going to struggle until you really get noticed, and that takes a while. So for, for them... It, didn't really launch until the 90s and it only lasted for about three to four years when Cobain died. We still listen to Nirvana today, let's face it, but the whole band as a whole, until when Kurt died, really kind of changed the setting. Cobain was known for having a really unhealthy addiction to heroin. He also had several health issues. And this led to him committing suicide. Or did he? Conspiracy theories? There are conspiracy theories. I'll, I'll mention, I'll talk about some theories in a little bit. But his health issues included depression, and he also had constant pain in, in his stomach. And like I said, he was known for using heroin. And if you look at the pictures of the scene of his death, his box that he kept all of his stuff for heroin in is very prominently in those pictures. Uh, while he was in Italy before his death, he ended up actually in the hospital in a coma. He had mixed alcohol, particularly champagne, and the drug Rohypnol. Don't mix alcohol and drugs. Bad idea. Don't really mix alcohol with pretty much anything unless it's food. Exactly. And he was on this really, really dangerous path for himself and his friends and wife, who was Courtney Love, were concerned as he continued on this really bad path. After returning from Italy, they actually convinced him that he needed help and he ended up in a rehab clinic in Los Angeles, California. He never actually finished that rehab program. He checked himself out and disappeared. His wife couldn't reach him. He had a daughter with her. Like, no one could find him. 
and Courtney Love made the decision to find a private de detective and hire them in order to find where Kurt Cobain was. Well, Kurt Cobain was in Seattle in Washington in his home and he refused to return to Los Angeles and he would stay in Seattle and he would die in Seattle on April 4th, 1994. So it was a very short-lived skyrocketed career. He was actually discovered on April 8th, 1994 by the electrician. Mm -hmm. One of the electricians that was coming over found him. His suicide note was actually in a planter with a pen in it. Very weird. Not exactly sure. So he, he ended up shooting himself is what they're thinking. Because they found his shotgun. However, there are theories surrounding Cobain's death, with many believing it to have been a murder rather than a suicide. This is because the gun that he supposedly shot himself with, there, there were no fingerprints that we know of. So that's weird. And then others actually ended up blaming his wife, Courtney, for pushing him to the edge, I guess. We unfortunately lost Kurt Cobain. Then we have Amy Winehouse, who is the most recent musician, singer in the music, in, in the music field to have died. Amy Winehouse was known for having a really hard problem with drugs and alcohol back in the day. And she was known for her voice. And she actually ended up putting out only two studio albums in her career. Frank in 2003 and Back to Black in 2006 when she actually won a ton of Grammys for her 2006 Back to Black, which actually, if you listen to the music, it, it talks about all of the struggles she's faced, all of them. When Frank, her first album was released, she was only 20 years old at the time. And it became extremely popular rather quickly and it skyrocketed her to fame, which once she got famous and was starting to make money, she struggled more than she ever had before. Before she became famous, she was known for drinking and doing marijuana, but she never did hard drugs like heroin or cocaine or anything like that. And that all changed after she skyrocketed fame and also after she met her boyfriend and later husband, something Fielder, Blake Fielder Civil, Civil that's it. And Fielder Civil, Civil, Fielder Civil introduced her to heroin actually. And not only that, he himself became like a drug to her it was a constant on again, off again relationship. And they kept breaking up and going back together and separating and going back together. Not only that, he was in jail a lot. A lot of the times he, he, he was behind bars quite a bit. And she did, you know, short stints in rehab. And unfortunately, none of them stuck. She was constantly still drinking and doing alcohol. And... 
2007, she had, she was having multiple drug and alcohol related issues and that actually affected her performances. A lot of her shows got canceled. One of her tours was canceled midway through because she wasn't even showing up. People booed her off stage because she was drunk on stage. It it just created a lot of problems. And in 2008, she was actually diagnosed with emphysema. And emphysema, if you don't know, basically is damage to your lungs and it hinders your ability to get enough oxygen to your body. It should have been a sign that she should have stopped what she was doing. She should have stopped the drugs. She should have stopped alcohol. She should have stopped smoking, which she did as well. She did not. None of that. It, it, it changed nothing. And she also supposedly developed an eating disorder. Didn't say which one. Couldn't find which one. And later on, around 2008, she made the statement that she actually had quit drugs completely. However, she did continue to drink alcohol. And she ended up in rehab one last time. And she finished the program and came back out with really high hopes of turning everything around. She was married to Blake Fielder Civil at this point. They got married in 2007 and they divorced in 2009, by the way. So that really bad cycle with her husband or ex-husband was still going. And she even tried to have a comeback tour with her first show in Belgrade, Serbia or Belgrade, Serbia. And it ended up completely failing because she was drunk again on stage and she, she ended up dying on July 23rd, 2011. She was discovered dead in her apartment due to alcohol poisoning. She was discovered by her bodyguard, Andrew Morris, who was living with her at the time and around 10 AM, He knocked on her door. He checked on her. He thought she was still asleep. But around 3 p.m., it was still quiet. She hadn't gotten up, nothing. So he went to check on her again. And she was in the same position she was in when he checked on her at 10 a.m. And so he went up, checked her pulse, and discovered she had no heartbeat. And she died of alcohol poisoning because she had a blood alcohol level of 0.416. Six. Your face. Your face says everything. Damn. Yes. I'm sorry. We don't usually curse, but wow. But Jesus. Okay. Okay. To give an example, at least here in America, if the the legal limit for driving intoxicated, which never should do anyway, but your blood alcohol content has to be 0.08 or lower. Exactly. She is so many. I mean, I believe once you hit like 0.2, you're already intoxicated, like, like she, near death intoxicated. She was over double the limit. Yes. <laughs> and it, that limit is known for uh, killing people. Well, I think 0.2 is going to kill you, let alone double. Yeah. For sure. Exactly. So she was actually discovered dead due to alcohol poisoning. She was found with at least two bottles of vodka on the floor that were empty. And that's probably just a little bit of what she drank that night. So 
unfortunately she she was lost and they did make a documentary in 2015 for her or about her really and there were a few songs that were published posthumously so what's interesting about amy winehouse and kurt cobain particularly is I believe they both have the same views regarding their musical careers. Neither, neither of them really wanted fame. They're both quoting as saying, I'm not in it for fame, I'm not in it for money, I'm in it for the music. Amy Winehouse is known to have spoken to her doctor about not wanting any psychiatric treatment because she didn't want it to mess with her, her musical abilities. Like I said, she wrote Back to Black all about her struggles with alcohol and drug addiction and one of her most her most famous song, Rehab, Back to Black, Rehab. Go listen to that song. Read all the meaning into that. It's insane. And it, it hit Amy extremely hard because she had no idea what to do with it, I think. That's my opinion. But it just hit her really, really hard. And then also when you have someone in your life like Blake Field or Civil, it's not going to help you. Well, I think, and again, in comparison to Cobain, I think Courtney Love was considered to be something similar to that. Enablers are not good people. Just Yeah, but Courtney actually pushed him to go to rehab. Blake Fielder did not do that, to my understanding. Her family and her doctor tried to get her into rehab is what I've, my understanding from the research I did was. Her husband and- less, her ex-husband less so. I mean, the man did introduce her to heroin. That was her first introduction into hard drugs, is my understanding, too. On to the conclusion. <laughs> there, uh, uh, same as the opening, there really isn't much of one. We've already stated that there, the, 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 the title of 27 Club Curse didn't really take effect until the death of Cobain, where people kind of went back, at least for music-wise, started to go back and realize there's a lot more people there. This is kind of this kind of thing. And, and, do, and, and there are many people, I believe Amy Winehouse even actually said that she didn't think she was going to make it past 27. If I remember reading correctly, but there's a lot of people that believe that. And again, fame comes quick. Sometimes fame is fleeting for sure. And you just sort of write it as it comes because you never know where it's going to go. I mean, you can't doubt, you can't, you can't say that there's definitely a lot of coincidences, but there certainly are rumors and conspiracies that some of this was planned out and that it really is a curse. But I did find an article, it's in my notes, that actually says that, that there have actually been statistical studies that show this is really just more of a myth that Age and which which has the highest celebrity death rate is actually the age of 56. And there have actually been more deaths by celebrities at the age of 28 than there have been at the age of 27. But what is particularly interesting about this 27 curse, as I mentioned before, is many of these, particularly music artists, but just the people on the list in particular, had very short careers, very fast-paced, very high celebrity, fast-paced, short careers just prior to their deaths. And the one article I was also reading kind of described these people as 
beautiful broken souls. And I think a lot of them are people who are just sort of trying to find who they, I mean, 27 is really young. It doesn't seem like when you're 20, 27 seems like forever, but 27 is still relatively young. I mean, when you're in your twenties, you're looking to find yourself. You're looking to figure out what you like, what you don't like, what you want to do with a career if you already have to figure it out. You're just sort of looking to live life and have fun in the process, but also finding a way to express yourself, which sometimes doesn't always come very easily. So I, I think it's really more of, we know the 27 club curse because a lot of the people that died at 27 are not only just really famous people, but famous people that have influenced, and we're, gonna, we're just mostly talking about musicians, but there are definitely actors and painters and artists that are on this list for sure. But we're talking mostly musicians. A lot of them were just people who were trying to express themselves and find themselves and just achieve fame in the process, whether they were looking for it or not. But a lot of them are highly notable people that have influenced ongoing generations, influenced the generations they were in, were influenced by other members of the 27 Club Curse prior. I mean, Robert Johnson influenced the 60s because he became incredibly popular. We have several 27 Club people that died throughout the 60s. And it, I mean, Janis Joplin, died two weeks after Jimi Hendrix. 1970 was a big year. And then I think only a year or two prior, Brian Jones died, one of the founders of Rolling Stones. Crazy. Yeah, the late 60s, I mean, the late 60s into the early 70s was just a, a very influential, rough, hard, politically charged, culturally charged time. And there was a lot going on. But a lot of notable musicians really came out of that era. And we are still influenced by them today. And we will continue to be influenced by them. Their records are still selling and making money. So I think it's more of not so much as it is a curse, as it is that we recognize that the people part of this particular quote club are people that we look up to or, in, or are influenced by it's insane how many people have died that have been so at their height of their careers too. Well, yeah. But as I said, the statistics also said that 28 had more celebrity deaths than 27 too. So that would also, I mean, just one more year and you still have the height of many people's careers. I'm just talking about in the 27 club. Oh, specifically just for the people that are in that particular club. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant. Like, if you look at all of these people and it's only, like I said, it only recently has started to include other forms of artists, like, like actors and actresses. They've, they even included Anton Yelchin who died at 27 by a freak accident. His car rolled on top of him. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you, you also have, like you said, painters and artists. I think there's a, even a couple writers in there at the very least for sure. Yes. Painting. Yeah. There's quite a few. Anything else you got? I think we. I don't have anything else to add because you know it, it's kind of hard to do something like the Twenty Seven Club Curse because there's no solidifying facts about when it started, how it started, and how it came to be. You know, you don't have all of that, un- unfortunately. And it's more of like I, I'm not sure I consider it a curse either. I think it's more of a myth than a curse. Yeah, that's true. I kind of just see it more as like as something 
that we we came up with this title to give it something right to to give it some kind of meaning and we're it, it's kind of like i would think of it more like the mummy's curse which wasn't really a thing it's not a curse no we people died of actual natural causes from that years years and years after it happened oh no lord carnarvon died rather quickly after he did but some of the other people died 10 15 years yeah. later yes but people needed to give it something to connect all the dots and of course you don't think of things like spores and everything else that's in that tomb so they call it the mummy's curse and i think this is very very similar i'm just not sure i would consider it a curse you know i would call it a curse if it really was the the highest celebrity death rate age but it's not that's true so, so then what's going on with the age of 56? I'm wondering. <laughs> Another episode to put on the list. <laughs> Lord of speaking, speaking of lists, now we only covered four people out of this massive list of 27 Club Curse members. I do have a link in my notes. It's not in there that I'm looking at it, but I will add it. There is a link to uh, another podcast that I really like listening to that has an exceptionally long, just throwing out there, very long, extensive look into uh, yeah. every musician in this club. And just FYI, it's about three hours long. But it's if you really, long, it's extremely long. It's a great podcast. It's called the Midnight Train Podcast, the 27 Club Curse. But if you really want a much more in-depth research into at least the musicians definitely check it out. They're they're really really well researched. If you want to listen to something that's about three hours long, yeah, do it in in bits. Like, don't sit through three hours unless you really can focus that long. Because I can't. <laughs> I, I I listen to it while I do other things. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I would too, but. I, I can't listen to the same thing for three hours. It, it's too much for my brain. So I need to stop after about an hour, hour and a half. And then I end up coming back to it. Yeah, that's fair. I don't usually do too many things that are three hours long, but I did find myself listening to my favorite band for three hours straight the other day while I was trying to get inspiration for some upcoming art projects. <laughs> music, music, I can listen to several out songs. Like they just keep going because... To me, I can tune out the words and just listen to the actual music as I'm doing things. There is more like what I like to do where I'll just pick music that has no lyrics. There. I love Lindsey Sterling music. I can just listen to that all day. I would literally listen to some Lindsey Sterling while I was doing research for this, now that you mentioned (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. Hey, is that why we're friends? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, apparently we're friends because we're both archaeologists. I glommed onto you the first day you came to work, and apparently you've never been to shaky since, which is what you keep saying, but I keep saying that you've never even tried. Can't get you rid get, of you! This you get making friends with an extrovert, okay? I know. I'm the introvert, and she's the extrovert. But that was not already obvious. And I feel screwed. <laughs> <laughs> but that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. We hope to see you next week as we continue to trek through history to, to explain, explain it all. Bye. Bye-bye.